alrighty folks, and welcome to the Chronicle Podcast channel. This is episode 49, Emperor Shanzong of Tan. So first of all, huge apologies for this very long break that we've had. Um, I can't even remember the last time I actually recorded an episode. I mean, I've not checked the date, but it's been a long time. It's been like three months, I think, at least. And there was a reason for it. Uh, well, there's actually a few reasons for it. Um, so I'll just uh, go through the list of things that were going on in the time that you know I was supposed to be recording the podcast episodes. So for example, it was the end of the school year in my old school. So it was exam season. So, you know, it was like all hands on deck kind of thing. Um, I was also doing a Chinese course at Peking University, so that was a, a course in learning Chinese as a second language, which was very intense. It was very good, but it was very intense. I was almost also finishing off my PGCE, and like the deadlines for these two courses were at the same time. And then I found out that my wife was pregnant, so yeah, it was like all hands on deck for this. And then, as well as that. I got a new job in another part of Beijing and we had to move house as well so there was a lot of time settling in and things and uh, funny story like I went to find like I was like going to record this episode tonight and I couldn't find my microphone <laughs> it was like getting lost in the move but uh, uh, my wife being my wife <laughs> she was able to find it no problem <laughs> so yeah that was it uh, so like all in all really I just I just, like, I just couldn't do this. Like, it was just impossible. There was so much on my plate where I just I could not physically do research properly and record an episode. There was just no way I could do it. So the hobby that is this podcast did have to get put on hold. Um, but, you know, I've started the new job. Uh, I've settled into the new school. So now um, I feel like I've, I can like put in a bit of time for this. And... Me recording the episode now is kind of proof of that. <laughs> uh, so yeah, but like one thing I will say is uh, thank you to all of you who continued listening to the show whilst um, I was on this extended break because I was seeing a lot of people were still listening. Like I was checking, you know, the stats and things, and people were still uh, giving the show a listen, and some people even started the show from scratch, which was lovely to see. So it's good to see that it's still like people are like you know, spreading the word almost, like it was telling people, oh, if you want to learn about Chinese history, that you can go with this show, which is very nice. I do appreciate that. Uh, but, you know, that's it. I'm, I'm going to stop talking about my personal life because, you know, nobody's going to really care about it <laughs> that much. I mean, at the end of the day, I'm here for um, this podcast and like, which is about Chinese history. So where we left off was uh, I was speaking uh, to the host of the Remember the Ladies podcast, and it was lovely. And th this subject was, of course, Woods Etienne. Uh, she had a fantastic career, and th that was kind of the case up until the end. And then as she got older, her grip on power began to slip. And then the final straw came when she employed the two half-brothers, both by the name of Jiang, and they were you know, in her chambers, and they were using her, like, their influence over her uh, to corrupt the court and things, and then, you know, it was just the usual, like, oh, give me some money and uh, you'll get the position <laughs> kind of deal. 
So then, of course, what happened was uh, the court conspired against Wu Zetian and they deposed her. And at the same time, they elevated her son, Emperor Zhongson, who she actually deposed earlier in his life, to the throne. And then he became the Tang Dynasty's sixth emperor. And the two Jiang brothers, who were notoriously corrupt in the court, they were killed. They were, um, they were executed. And then that was that. So, like, and then the thing is, like, Emperor Zhongson, he was only on the throne for five years, and even then he wasn't really in power. It was all his wife and the Empress Dowager, uh, no, not Empress Dowager, Huang Ho. It was, yeah, it was, it was the Empress, sorry, it was, yeah, the Empress, uh, uh, Lady Wei, or Empress Wei. She was really the power behind the throne, and... She w- I think she got a lot of inspiration from Wu Zetian and particularly her style and she was power hungry herself and she thought if one woman could do it and become empress then why not two? So what happened was like she didn't wait for her husband to die like Wu Zetian even though that's kind of like not what Wu Zetian was planning uh, but she actually murdered her husband and she poisoned him in order to get to power and then once she... Uh, killed her husband and like the thing is it reminds me of um, Claudius like Emperor Claudius in ancient Rome and his wife like she poisoned him uh, it's like like a very similar story because she had a she had a lover on the side and things as well and um, she thought that she could rule through um, their young son and this lover that she had, like he was the new emperor's advisor, so to speak. And basically, she was going through the motions of putting her people into arrived. positions within the and court. And the hero you know, would come like by the name of Li Longji, who was the son of Emperor Song, you know, the guy that was just poisoned by his wife, uh, in the year 685. Uh, Li Longji was a very capable young man during this time. Uh, he, and like a lot of this is due to actually Wu Zetian, that was his grandmother, and she did keep a close watch over him, and she made sure that he could write well, and read well, and uh, think for himself, so a lot of that, like, kind of credit goes to, to her for that sense, and he is the one who finally led a palace coup against Empress Dowager Wei, and after years of the Lee family backstabbing each other and chaos within the court, it would be this guy who would get things in order once again. And you could argue that, you know, he did have a personal grudge against his... Is it his mother or stepmother at least? But I don't know what that would fall under. I don't know if it's a biological mother or not. Uh, but anyway, Lee Longina's followers stormed the palace in the year 710. And they found Empress Dowager with her lover, who was the advisor of the young emperor, and they were both executed. Uh, Empress Wei did try to get away, but it was like somebody in the Imperial Guard who found her and beheaded her. And then her head was spiked onto a stick and displayed publicly alongside her body for all to see, and she was posthumously demoted to the status of commoner. And the members of court who were within her faction were also murdered. So yeah, very bloody stuff, to say the least. And once all this was said and done, it was Emperor Ruizong who placed who was placed back on the throne. And he was another one who was initially on the throne 
uh, when Emperor Galzon died, but then was removed by their mother Wu Zetian, uh, and that like he yeah, so that's what happened there. Uh, but the thing is, Emperor Raizong he wasn't on the throne for long. It was only two years, uh, and it wasn't like he died or anything. He just retired and he stepped aside for the well-anticipated Li Longji, who would be named uh, Tang Xuanzong in the year 712, and then, like, well, most honestly named Xuanzong in 756 when he died. Um, one thing that was kind of tricky was that uh, Ruizong had two sons who could have been eligible for the throne, but instead it was all everyone agreed that Li Longji should take the, like, be the, the crown prince, considering he was the one that actually placed Ruizong as emperor, so um, there was an agreement there on that sense. So that was that was fine, and um, for once there was a bit of stability within the Tang court, and yeah, and this is where this capable and fairly young man comes to the throne, and boy was he ready for the challenge. So I remember saying that Tan Taizong was one of the best emperors ever in China's history, but this guy comes close as well. And what you've got in this situation is one of the best dynasties that to ever have existed in China's history, because the Tang is known as one of the Golden Ages, and it's this guy who really brings it in. He's the one who brings it to life. So he is the best emperor in the best dynasty in the best era of China's history. So, like, you know, we're at the zenith of Imperial China. Like, a lot of people say on the global stage, it's usually... Uh, Tang China and Song China, like they're like that's when the Middle Kingdom truly is the Middle Kingdom. I mean, you could argue like now if you wanted to that China's like back on the rise as a superpower, but um, I'm just going to kind of leave that up to yourselves. <laughs> um, so um, the question here is then, what made him so great, or what made his reign so great? And the what, the best word that I could really come up with, if it was just like one single word, it would just be art. That he was a very large patron of the arts. And what I'm going to do actually is I'm going to quote from the Cambridge History of China book. And it says here, quote, Tan Xuanzong was a ruler out of the ordinary, who let his indelible print upon the history of his times. He was, moreover, a man of many parts, a skilled musician, a poet, a good calligrapher, patron of many artists and writers. He was also deeply versed in Taoist philosophy, of which he became a major patron, and, in spite of his early measures against the Buddhist establishment, later became deeply involved in esoteric Buddhism. As a person, he seems to have enjoyed deep friendship with his brothers and family members, and even the formal records of his reign portray a man of great personal warmth, close attachment to his advisors, directness and passion. Within a generation of his death, a wealth of semi-fictional tales and folklore had gathered about his name, while the story of his ill-starred and disastrous passion for his consort, Yang Guifei, become one of the tragic themes of a Chinese literature, the subject of which innumerable poems, novels and dramas were written about. End quote. And um, but you can gather from the quote there that, you know, this was a really inspirational man and uh, they did like and uh, the author of uh, the Cambridge Chinese of history so Cambridge history of China uh, really dives into 
the artistic side of this emperor and like this is when the the empire the tang dynasty they certainly have this golden age when it comes to the arts uh, so think of you know dancing painting music and then of course poetry came into the fray because of this emperor now i haven't mentioned this but tang china is always seen as the best time for chinese poetry to flourish and it was during xuanzong's reign where you have li bai who is one like he's like a lot of people would say he's the best poet ever to live in china uh he's always like number one or like some people might say number two and the reason why they may why they might say number two is because the other great poet in china's history dofu was also uh, around during this day and a lot of people would ask the, this question who was the better poet li bai or dofu so again like uh, it just goes to show how how much the arts were introduced into china's uh kind of story back then and what i want to do is like i don't want to dive too much into the poetry as such in this episode because you know we could talk about levi's life in an episode in itself and like you know we could um like kind of go down that route where we pick out the best poets and kind of do a little biography on them but that could come later on once we've done all of these um like this kind of like chronological history of china um and the quote does mention as well the very important figure in this time uh the consort yang guifei and again i'm going to try and deliberately not mention her just now because she plays a huge role in the downfall of the good days and i believe it deserves an episode in a, in a couple of weeks so i'm going to try and like leave her out of today's episode um one thing to note though uh, is that what what makes Xuanzong's reign so strange in a lot of ways is because he does bring you know China up to its height and within his lifetime it goes straight downhill again so it's quite amazing to see that like you know in one emperor's reign like China climbs the highest of heights but at the same time it gets to one of its lower periods as well um, but yeah, we'll get into that later on. Well, I'll be like, in two weeks' time, we'll talk about what actually happened there. So, in the early days, what was Xuanzong doing? And he did have a lot of fires to put out. However, by appointing the right people in the right offices, the cogs in the machine within the empire begun churning again, and everything was beginning to function. No more chaos and backstabbing going on, and it was all thanks to the new emperor and his new advisors calling the shots. Now, it's pretty much the same old story in the sense that people were put into office based on merit again, rather than through personal or familial connections, which was happening towards the end of Wu Zetian's reign and thereafter. Um, as well as that, like, uh, like there was a story that I read, which again just kind of highlights the kind of emperor China got during this time. So it was the year 713, you know, so Xuanzong's only been emperor for three years. And there was a large military exercise in the capital Chang'an for the end of the year. And all ministers within 300 li, which is around 150 kilometers squared, were supposed to attend. And one man did, and his name is Yao Chong, and he becomes this great advisor for uh, Emperor Xuanzong. 
And what happened was the two men, they go hunting together. And as they're hunting and they're on this little walk, they begin discussing politics. And Xuezong asked him uh, how he would feel about working for the imperial court. And Yao Chong says to him, I would only work if you pass on 10 series of reforms. To which Xuanzong says, okay, what reforms are they? And then Yao Chong uh, goes on to mention them in this particular order. So number one, restore government by humanity rather than rely on the deterrent power of harsh laws. Two, refrain from military adventures. Three, apply the law in all its rigor to everyone alike. And this included those in the imperial harem and stuff, like everyone. Four, prevent eunuchs from entering politics. Five, prohibit the posts of imperial kingsmen to posts within the central government. Six, prohibit the levying of excessive taxes in the hope of achieving the emperor's favour. Seven, restore the personal authority of the emperor which had been diminished throughout the years. Eight, Allow ministers free-spoken remonstration without fear of punishment. 9. Suspend the construction of Taoist and Buddhist temples. 10. Eliminate excessive political power of consort families. Now that last one, I think you could all agree, like that was certainly needed considering what happened with Wu Zetian. Like, I believe she was a good empress, but there were, like, there were also issues and she did... You know, there was a lot of blood spilled for her to get to where she was. And then, of course, uh, like the next emperor, the same thing happened where he was poisoned by his wife, who was going to try and seize power. The emperor liked everything Yao Chun was saying, and the emperor agreed. He said, okay, no, I like this, and I, I think you, you've got the right idea. And Yao Chun became one of Xuanzong's top advisors afterwards. And... He did follow through with what he agreed to, and from the central government came sweeping reforms, and like, and there was power, like it was designed to eliminate all of these things that had been going on within the country. So what Yao Chong had actually done was he identified the problems the kingdom was facing, and he came up with solutions in order to solve these problems, and. The central government really did make up for the instability of the past few decades when Xuanzong comes to power. So what Xuanzong inherited was problems within the bureaucracy, taxation, coinage, there was famines, people taking advantage of lenient laws on Buddhist sects, the military, and even his own family. Now I'm not going to bore you with all the details here because that would take I mean, you know, about 10 episodes for me to really flesh that out for you uh, but I'll kind of like briefly go over what the problems were and what Xuanzong was trying to do to resolve them and that was the thing there, there was mixed results sometimes it worked sometimes it didn't uh, so for example when it came to positions in court there was a huge imbalance between the ministers who had served as local magistrates which was usually you know it was, it was kind of practice before you got a bigger job and then there was those in the capital uh, which is like, you know, you're in the imperial court. Uh, so like I was saying, there's normally, and I mean normally, a process and a career which is laid out in front of you when you're doing the imperial exams. You then, like, you know, you start as a local magistrate, then you can kind of build your way up. That's what's supposed to happen. However, this 
wasn't really going on under the not-so-watchful eye of Empress Wei, and ministers could pay to skip province duty and the local magistrates, and they could just head straight to the capital. And then, of course, the result is that there's nobody in the provinces governing, and at the same time, you've got a bunch of people in the capital who are not capable. So then this leads to two problems. And the first one is obviously, you know, you've got people who are, who are there that don't have any experience and they don't know what they're doing with their job. And then the second is that they're putting a strain on the state by having to get paid wages. And then this brings me on to my, my next point. Who's paying their wages? And where are the taxes coming from to pay their wages? And it's the usual story. The poorest in society were the ones who were paying taxes because they can't avoid them. However, rich families were able to use loopholes and, of course, their connections in order to not pay taxes. Now, this sounds very familiar, doesn't it? Sounds so familiar to today's world where you've got companies like Amazon and Google who don't pay their tax. And it was happening, you know, back in the 700s as well. Rich people weren't paying their way. Shock horror. Had this tax avoidance even begun to penetrate the Buddhist sects, who were usually granted tax relief from the state, as it was, and still is, the largest religion in China today, it wasn't just tax avoidance, though, that brought Buddhism to the emperor's attention, but there was the illegal building of monasteries, and if Xuanzang found out that a, mon a particular monastery didn't have the license to be built, then he ordered it to get demolished. And then there was even times when Buddhist monks could leave like small kind of military revolts. And of course, you don't want that if you're emperor. So yeah, he did kind of come down hard on Buddhism in the early stages of his reign, but he does kind of re relax on that later on. Now, some other stuff that I read about was um, the the huge issue that Xuanzang was facing, which was currency. So there was a lot, like, there was no central minting system, like, like, minting coins in uh, this time for the Tang Dynasty. And what was happening was a lot of people were making their own coins and, like, counterfeiting the current standard. So then, of course, when people are doing that, currency becomes worthless. And it's a huge problem because then it leads to inflation and things. And what... Xuanzang tried, well, at first was um, he was issuing the death penalty if you got caught counterfeit coins. And then later on, he then said, okay, we'll not give the death penalty, but we'll take that person's assets. And that was like everything that they had. And then that seemed to kind of like make people try and stop counterfeiting. I mean, it still happened, obviously, uh, but that was like some of the measures that was that was put in place to try and stop this. Uh, and like I said, there was like there was some things that worked, some things that didn't. And the coin one, from what I can gather, was a mixed bag. Like I heard that later on, some minister went was like to the Yangtze River Basin where they found out there was a huge counterfeiting operation there, and dealt with it very harshly. But the emperor didn't want that, and then he was dealt with pretty harshly. Like, he wasn't executed, but he was dealt with. Like he he kind of got the sack uh, for that. So all in all, there was a lot of problems that this new imperial court was facing. However, you know, as time progressed, the state was making the comeback from that little blip from the chaos that was going on before Xuanzang. 
and Tang China really began to project itself onto the world stage once again. And I mentioned before that foreigners from India and even as far as Europe all came to visit the glorious city that was Chang'an. And, you know, I've said that, like, I took a bit of a dip, but um, it was alive and kicking once again, and the frontiers were secured. And this was, again, thanks to the military reforms that Xuanzang, that Xuanzang took uh, and, and um, kind of secured the frontiers in that sense as well. So trade was running freely once again. Um, however... Xuanzong did become a victim of his own success in this regard, because as the two as the good times are rolling, harem politics came to control his life, and there were a few concubines who infatuated the emperor, and he certainly had favourites, but none of them came close to the last and most fatal one, Yan Yu Huan, um, and this is what which strange. Uh, Yan Yu Huan was actually the wife of Prince Shou initially, which is uh, the emperor's son. Uh, but she caught the eye of the emperor, and then she was placed into his harem all of a sudden. And then he later named her Yang Gui Fei, which translates to uh, beautiful consort or princess consort. And what is interesting about her is that, you know, normally back in these times, and like during the Song, Yuan, Ming, and Qin eras, like what's seen as like the beautiful women are usually not like not always, but like usually seen as like pretty skinny. However, during this particular time with this particular emperor, and because of this particular woman, the perfect women back then were seen to be chubby, or kind of like a little bit fat, you could say. But I'm going to go with chubby or delightfully plump. <laughs> uh, and this is because Yang Guifei was, by all accounts, pretty chubby. And it just goes to show how much influence this emperor had, and indeed how much influence this consort had over him, as he began to withdraw from day the day-to-day run-ins of politics in order to spend more time with her, and Xuanzong's capable and trusted advisors seen problems were on the horizon with this woman, and they tried to control or maybe not control, that's not the right word, but they were trying to limit the relationship between the two of them. And there was even some times where they said, because the emperor was, you know, like, getting entertained by Yang Guifei, uh, they said, remove her while we talk to you. And then when they when she left, he said, no, bring her back. So, like, there was, there was conflict going on when this woman came into the scene. Um, but what I'm going to do is I'm going to leave it here, and I'll leave that for the next episode. So next time, we will see how this relationship between Emperor Xuanzong and Yang Guifei plays a huge role in what's to come, which is of course the Anlu Shan Rebellion, and basically, but not entirely, the fall of the Tang Dynasty. So, see you next time, and thanks for listening.